Revelation 19 this morning, verses 1 through 10. Let's read that together again. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both great and small, both small and great, excuse me. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and, the, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen, and Lord, may you add your blessing to the reading of your word, and may you speak to our hearts, and may you, Lord, just fill us with awe and wonder this morning as we consider this magnificent passage of scripture of that great day when your, your bride, the church, will be joined to you fully and completely. And we celebrate with you at this thing called the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. So Lord, speak to us this morning. Lord, if it's even possible, give us a heavenly experience as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing <clears throat> passage of scripture, and I'm not sure we can do justice to these 10 verses this morning. We see rejoicing in heaven. We see people gathered around the throne of God, and it says here in verse 1, after these things. And this is referring to a break. This is referring to a, a pause in time, a change of subject, a change of topic, and remember in chapters 17 and 18, we had been experiencing that Babylon was being judged by God. In chapter 17, the world's religious system uh, that had been established by the Antichrist, that one world religion is being judged in chapter 17, and in chapter 18, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, the world's economic and political and power structure is being judged by God, materialism is being judged. And so God has had the final word. He's judged Babylon, and not just Babylon of the time of the tribulation, but Babylon in the sense of its influence over the entire world. We talked about materialism, particularly in chapter 18, and how God brings all of those things to nothing, and it all burns up. It's all judged by God, and anything that is not done for God 
Uh, We went back and looked at those passages in Matthew 6 and other places where Jesus said, only those things that are done for God will last. Uh, Only the heavenly treasure will stand up. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, uh, one of those two places, he talked about um, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. And only those things that remain before Christ will be considered gold and precious stones. And the wood, hay, and stubble would be burned up and would be judged by God. So after these things, John is saying another loud voice of a great multitude in, in heaven uh, came forth. And here's what it was saying. And it's like he's listening in to a worship service. And it's saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our God. And we might ask, who is this great multitude? Who's in this worship service? And back in Revelation chapter 7, if you want to turn back there, you can, beginning in verse 9. It says this, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude. So most commentators believe this is the same great multitude. A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Very similar words. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they're going to pop up here in a few minutes, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? In other words, who is this multitude? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it seems to be saying this great multitude is the tribulation saints. These are the people who came to know Christ during the most difficult time on the face of planet Earth for someone to come to know Christ and to make that decision and choose to follow him. And so if that's true, as it says here back in 19... Uh, Verse 1, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, these tribulation saints, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. It's saying again what it said back there in chapter 7. And here's the interesting thing. We'll see this as we go along today. But this word Alleluia appears only four times in the New Testament. And they're all right here in our passage this morning. And when you see a word like Alleluia, you might think, Well, I would see this word in the Bible more frequently, but it's not. And it seems to be the language of heaven. It seems to be this is what you hear if you could listen in to what's happening in heaven. This is the kind of word that you'll hear. So this is not a normal earthly word. Now we say it, praise the Lord we say it, we get to say it. And every every now and then, I don't know if this is the weirdest thing to me, when I'm out in public and I hear someone who's maybe, I don't know, speaking in such a way that it's pretty apparent they're not a believer, and then something good happens, and they say, hallelujah, and I think, oh my gosh, did they just give praise to God? Which they did, right? Hallelujah, hallel, praise the Lord, Yah is Yahweh, praise the Lord. And somebody's saying, praise the Lord who doesn't know the Lord because some good fortune came their way. And I think, wow, that's, that's sort of a paramount to people, you know, taking the, 
the Lord's name and using it as a, as a curse word. And I think sometimes when I hear them do that, if they only knew. And, and you know what? That might be a good way, a good end as an evangelistic tool, right? To be able to say to someone, do you know what you just said? Let me interpret that for you. You just gave praise to the God of heaven. You just gave thanks to Jesus. Do you know him? Or are you just throwing that word around? It's a great opportunity to speak to people. So this word, alleluia, that we see here in our New Testament, notice there's no H in front, is the Greek uh, New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word, hallelujah, with an H. It's the same word, it's just a transliteration. And the word hallelujah actually is not used all that often in the Old Testament. In fact, the, the hymn book of Israel, the book of Psalms, you would think that's the place where I'm going to find it to, the most, and yet it's only used 24 times in the book of Psalms. So you would think that as we think about the language of heaven and we think about worship and praise and attribution of God's uh, characteristics and qualities, that this would be a common phrase. But I think the Bible is sort of giving us a subliminal message here, that we don't want to cheapen this word hallelujah or alleluia. We want it to be used for the right purposes. We want it to be used for the purposes of bringing honor and glory and praise and thanksgiving to our God. So let's make sure that when we use this word, and we are to use this word as believers in Jesus Christ, that when we use this word, we are using it to honor him. So this word appears four times in the New Testament. It appears right here in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. And it points out that God is to be honored, that God is to be praised. In fact, notice what it says here in verse 1. It says, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Now, we could just kind of mo keep moving on there, but the interesting thing here, and I'm not sure why the translators didn't do this, but in the original language, there is a definite article, the word the, in front of each of these terms. And so let me read it to you with that article. Uh, Alleluia, the salvation and the glory and the honor and the power belong to the Lord our God. You can see that it's very specific, and it's not just saying that God uh, is wonderful because of salvation, that God is wonderful because of, uh, and, and that we give him glory or honor, and that power is attributed to him. It's saying the salvation the glory, the honor, and the power belong to the Lord our God. So it's making a very specific point. We might attribute, you know, salvation as another word for deliverance. We might attribute in some ways these qualities or characteristics to a person who helps us out of a difficult or a dire situation. But the point is being made here that alleluia, praise and thanksgiving, praise to the Lord God Almighty is given because of the salvation. You see, this is exclusive, isn't it? There is only salvation to be found in one place, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that idea that all roads lead to God is not true. It's not true in the sense that we can find God that way, but it is true in that one day all roads will lead to God. And if you haven't chosen God, if you haven't found him through the gospel and understood who he is and given your life to him, you will end up at the throne of God. And you will end up there in the capacity of the one being judged by the Lord God Almighty. So in that sense, in a gross sense, yes, all roads lead to God, but not for the point of salvation. 
There's only one path of salvation, and Jesus said it. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So the salvation, the glory. So all praise, all anything that's worthy to say to somebody, thank you and bless your name and all those kinds of things. There's only one person that is worthy of hearing those words, and his name is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The honor. You know, we give honor to many things in our lives, don't we? We, we give honor to a person who helps us and who does a wonderful thing. We give honor to people who seem to be high achievers in society. We give honor to people who seem to be brilliant people. We give honor to people who seem to have amassed a, a lot of power and wealth. But there is only one who is worthy of honor, and his name is God. And power. You know, we tend to think in our society, on our level, that money is power. That being in and, and, you know, who you know, that's what counts, and that's what gives you power. But there is only one who has true authority and true power, and his name is God. So here, this attribution, alleluia, the salvation, the glory, the honor, and the power belong to the Lord our God. It all belongs to him. And let's make sure that we give him that praise and that honor and that glory in our lives and that we keep in perspective that there is only one who has true power and his name is God. And it says in verse 2, 19, 2, 4, and you might look at this as a reason why the praise is happening, the reason why the word alleluia is there. 19.2.4, true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. You see, this is why it makes sense that that great multitude would be the tribulation saints because earlier they had said, Lord, who will avenge us? When will this avenging take place? When will things be made right? And right here, things are being made right because true and righteous are his judgments. You see, on that great day, when any person stands before God, whether they stand before him as a believer at the Bema seat of Christ or whether they stand before him in that unfortunate and that dreadful position of receiving the judgment of God because they shook their fist at him and they refused to turn to him and humble themselves and receive the blood of Christ as the forgiveness of their sins. Either way, on that great day, the scriptures tell us over and over and over, we will all be before him without excuse. So with respect to the judgment for the deeds of the flesh and who we were and how we lived our lives and the choices we made, his judgments and his righteousness will be true. And it says here, they're praising him because he has finally judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. During the time of the tribulation, for sure, everyone who came to know Christ came to a bloody end. There's no such thing as being safe and being a believer. In fact, a part of the deception is everyone who comes to worship the beast and uh, the Antichrist and the red dragon, Satan himself, during this time called the tribulation, as we've just studied, 
we know that they will be sorely disappointed because they took his mark and because they worshiped him, they thought they were okay, they thought they were safe. And yet they find out tragically that it was all a big lie, that it was all a huge deception. That the ways of Satan, the ways of the beast, the ways of the Antichrist are being judged finally. And finally, the blood of the saints, the tribulation saints are being avenged by God. And again, verse 3, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Talking about the smoke of Babylon, talking about the smoke of God's judgment as he has literally judged Babylon both literally and figuratively. And it's saying forever and ever her smoke rises up in eternity and before the throne of God. And it says here in verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. So the multitude, the tribulation saints are worshipping God. And now we see these people, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which we've seen earlier. We saw them in chapter 4. We saw them uh, earlier throughout the book of Revelation. And now we see them again here around the throne, falling down and worshiping God on the throne, saying, Amen and Alleluia. Amen, let's not forget, is a word that means so be it. So as God has judged Babylon and God has sat on his throne and doled out the proper righteous things that are due to each one of us, they back that up by saying, Amen, so be it, and Alleluia, praise the Lord. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both great and small. And this word praise is in the present tense and is therefore a command to keep on praising the Lord. In other words, the praise of the Lord should never cease, it should never stop. And we might look at the throne room of heaven and we might think about the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the multitude in heaven and think, yeah, that's okay, that's appropriate for them. But you see, this is a picture for us. This is our destiny. This is where we're going to end up. And you see, this is why worship is so important for us, not just a time on Sunday morning when we gather and we sing songs of praise, but this is something that we should be engaged in at all times in our lives. We need to find ways to build praise and worship and honor and thanksgiving into our lives so that we like the multitude of heaven, like the four living creatures and the 24 elders are offering praise and thanksgiving and worship to the Lord. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, we need to learn to practice now what it's like to worship then. We don't want to get there then on that day and not know any of the songs, right, as it were. I think we're, we're going to know them. You know, and it says that we're going to be singing a new song. We've looked at some of these things about praise and the praise of heaven as we've gone through these chapters. But we want to remember that, that the praise of the Lord, as it says here, is in the present tense. It's a command to keep on praising the Lord. So let us build these things into our lives. This voice that came from the throne saying praise our God obviously is not God. It must be an angel or someone there in the throne, there in the service of the Lord. 
giving a decree, giving an encouragement, giving a, a command saying, praise our God, all you his servants. Now, this is the first time the word servant's going to come up this morning, but let me stop and ask me as well as ask you a question. It says, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Are you his servant? See, the scriptures tell us that if we believe in Christ, that we are his servant, don't they? Paul says that all throughout his writings, he always identified himself as a servant, as a slave of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be the servant of God? What does it mean to be the slave of Jesus Christ? Well, if we take a look at the idea or the picture of a slave or a servant, that slave or the servant is there to do the bidding of their master. That slave or that servant is there to do whatever is asked of them. You see, it's not optional, is it, for a slave or a servant to sit on the sideline and say, I'm too busy to engage. Is it? A slave or a servant doesn't have that option, do they? Yet we think in our 21st century American Christianity that we're free to serve God however we want, whenever we want, whenever it's convenient for us. And I submit to you this morning for reconsideration that you and I are called doulos. That's the Greek word for servant or bond servant or bond slave. And it says here, all you, his servants, those who fear him. And there's the second part, the second component of being a servant. That's the fear of the Lord. You know, in the book of Proverbs is, is replete with this idea of fearing God. And it means to honor him, to revere him, to hold him in the highest honor. So do we honor God in our lives, in our thinking, in our priorities, in how we live our lives? You see, no matter what we do, the, the scriptures tell us in, in as many ways possible, as possible that we are to honor God with everything. Paul says in Colossians 3, to honor the Lord with our work. To, to honor the, our, our earthly masters as if we were serving Jesus himself. You see, so we should be honoring God no matter what we do, no matter how we do it. However we do it, do our work heartily as unto the Lord rather than as unto men. You know, sometimes we can cop these attitudes and, and say, well, you know what, uh, they get 40 hours and that's it. Or, or we, we come up with these things, we draw these boundaries in our minds and we say, that's it, that, that I'm only going to give them this much, I'm only going to punch the clock and punch in and punch out or whatever. But that's an attitude that's not supported by Scripture. The Scripture is we do what we do heartily before our earthly master just as if we were serving the Lord. Why do we do that? Because it's, it's a testimony to God. It's a testimony that we go above and beyond the call of duty not to, you know, make it in the world or to get a raise and those kinds of things. All those things happen for sure if you, if you honor God. But if your attitude is to honor God and not so much to do it so you can get ahead in life, it's my personal belief that God will bless us if we do the right thing. I'm not saying, you know, pro a prosperity doctrine here. I'm just saying if we do the right thing and we honor God in our workplaces or in the way that we do the things that we do, even if it's the most menial things, even if it's things at home, 
in our marriage relationships, in our family relationships, if we do whatever we do, do our work heartily as unto the Lord, rather than unto men, for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. So are we a servant? Am I a servant? My attitude reflects whether or not I truly understand if I'm a servant. And if I truly fear him, verse 5. And it says both small and great. You know, sometimes we can, we can compare ourselves to other people, can't we? And we can think, they're great, I'm small. You know what? Before God, there is no such thing as small and great when it comes to humanity. God created all people equally. He created us to love him and to honor him and to have a relationship with him. So I think it is biblically incorrect thinking to think as we think about the Lord or as we pray or we seek the Lord to think uh, this person's great and I'm small. This person's smarter or wiser than I am, therefore God will use them to accomplish more things. I don't think that's necessarily true. God will take any willing servant, any vessel that honors him and use them for his glory. Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him. And I believe this is where it begins, is we honor God in our lives by worshiping him. Verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Amazing. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Is it the same great multitude or is it a different great multitude? I don't know. But here they are. This praise you see has increased in intensity because it's now the praise with the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. This is something that's louder and it's more intense than what we heard earlier beginning in verse 1. Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now let's talk about this word omnipotent for the, a moment. It's a word that means all-powerful. In other words, there is no one in the universe with more power than God. So the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Remember Satan when he took Jesus out to try and tempt him? In Luke chapter 4, we find these words. Then the devil, taking him, that is Jesus, up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, or excuse me, worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You see, we've, we've read in our study the origins of Satan, haven't we? We've looked at uh, the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, where... Back in eternity past, Satan was before the throne of God, arguing with God, saying that he would be like the Most High. And here he is trying to convince the Son of God that even though for a time, for a season, it is true, 
Satan has been given great authority and power on this earth. Here he is saying to Jesus, I have this authority. These kingdoms of the world are mine, and I can give them to whomever I wish. You see, that's, that's the stage for the Antichrist as we enter the time of the tribulation. And he offers them to Jesus really, in a sense, early. Because Jesus had not yet been given all things. We know this. Jesus himself said that. And yet here, Satan is trying to deceive Jesus, saying, if you would worship and honor me as you worship and honor your Father, then I will give you these things. And here we are at a point in time, at a point in history, where God himself is judging Satan, where he's judging the world and its system, and all of the praise and the honor is going to God as it should. And Jesus, of course, correctly stated to him in Luke 4, 8, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, just that focus on worship. Where is my worship? Where is your worship? How do I worship and honor God? How do I not worship and honor God? And how I think and how I pray and how I <clears throat> make my priorities and how I make my schedule and my calendar. Remember Jesus said in Luke 16, excuse me, Luke 6 verse 13, as he uh, taught the disciples how to pray in what we just call the Lord's Prayer, he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, as we call it, where Jesus is praying before he was tempted. John 17, 15, excuse me, before he went through the Garden of Gethsemane and was taken out to the cross, he said these words in his prayer. I do not pray that you should take them, <clears throat> meaning his disciples, out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So you see, Satan wants to try and come into the life of the believer and convince us that he is more powerful and has more authority than he truly has. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, here's what Paul the, the apostle said in a similar manner. He says, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. It's interesting that Paul said almost verbatim the same thing that Jesus said in John 17.15 as he prayed to the Father and said that you should keep them from the evil one. And Paul reaffirms that, saying, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. You see, Satan has very limited power for a short period of time, as it were. God is the one who is truly powerful. God is the one who is truly omnipotent. So let's honor God for who he is. Let's not be deceived and think when things cave in around us and when difficulties come and when trials come. And thank God for this passage right now in our lives. We just lost our third parent in 15 months. To read these words and to be encouraged. Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God is in control. He knows What's going on? I look back to a year ago. A year ago today, I came home from the hospital. 
I didn't know what was going to be in front of me, but God was so gracious and merciful in my life. The Lord God omnipotent reigns, and whether we are on the down or we are on the up, I, I got to tell you this story. I, I don't know where my granddaughter Avila came up with this, but every night at dinner, we get around the table, we're eating together, and Avila says, okay, everybody, and she's four, okay, everybody share your high and your low from the day. And we all have to go around the table, and she addresses us. She says, you, you didn't go yet. It's your turn. And we all have to share our high and our low from the day. And it was so precious one night as we were doing that, one of the last nights I was there. You know, kids, they go through good days and bad days, just like us, except we don't tend to get as punished as they do. And so Avila had a particularly difficult run-in with her dad earlier in the day because of her behavior. And she said where her high was. I don't remember what it was, uh, unfortunately. But she said, my low, daddy, was when you had to punish me today. And then the next one was Landon. He said, you know what, that was my low too because I didn't want to have to do that. But now we understand what went wrong, right? And then he shared his high. But you know what, God is so gracious to us, isn't he? You know, when we think about our highs and our lows, and we think about the Lord God omnipotent reigning, and we think about things happening in our lives, and, you know, sometimes we don't know why they happen. Is this really the discipline of the Lord in my life? Or is this just uh, my own stupidity because of my own sin, and I'm just reaping the consequences of my sin? Or is it just the randomness of sin? You know, we live in a fallen world. We are we are, Paul says in Romans 8, we are unredeemed beings living in redeemed flesh. Or excuse me, we are redeemed beings living in unredeemed flesh. And we have not yet experienced the resurrection of the body. You know, am I experiencing things that is due to my own failure? Or is it just due to sin? Either way, it goes on to say in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Let's remember, let's keep things in perspective. God is in control. God is in charge. And regardless of my estate, whether it be low or whether it be high, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And notice what he says here as he changes the subject in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for, for this reason, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. This thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. What an amazing thing. This is a historic thing for all of history, for all of posterity that is about to take place. You see, all throughout the scriptures, at least the New Testament scriptures, the church is called the bride of Christ. And the marriage of the Lamb is always referred to in the New Testament as Jesus being married to his church. Now, we need to keep a, a distinction here that in the Old Testament, God did refer to Israel as his, as his bride, but God looked at Israel that, as in the fact that he was already married to Israel. With the church, there is this prophetic element that Jesus has, had given us all throughout the New Testament that the church would one day be wed to her bride, to her bridegroom. And that's why Jesus gave us that picture uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage on the earth is to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
the marriage customs in Hebrew culture were very different from the rest of the world. Through, uh, marriage though marriage customs varied in the ancient world, there were usually uh, three major aspects. Number one, the marriage contract was often consummated by the parents when the future spouses were still children. This is still common in, in much of the world today. The parents made the decision about who should be married. It wasn't left up to 18 and 20-year-old adolescents who have very little faculty for making sound, wise decisions. And so the marriage contract in the Jewish culture was consummated by the parents. They made the agreement, usually when the often when the children were still in the womb. And the payment of a suitable dowry was often the feature of the contract. <coughs> and when consummated, the contract meant that the couple was legally bound to be married. Number two, when a couple had reached a suitable age, the second step in the wedding took place. This was a ceremony in which the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, would go to the bride's house to escort her to his home. This is the background of the parable of the virgins in Matthew chapter 25. However, prior to this, the bridegroom would have built an extension onto his father's house and thus prepare a place for his bride before going to get her. And then finally, the bridegroom would bring his bride to his home and the marriage supper would begin. It would be a seven-day event to which guests were invited and this marriage would be consummated and fully in effect. During this time, before the time when the bride would, excuse me, the groom would go and get his bride, if anything happened to interrupt or to interfere with that relationship, and divorce would happen. And by the way, the only way that contract could be broken that the parents had set up between the fathers of the two families would have been divorce. You see, it was considered in their eyes, even by that agreement between the parents, that they were married even though they hadn't yet physically consummated their marriage because they weren't old enough to complete the betrothal. The marriage symbolism is beautifully fulfilled in the relationship of Christ to his church. The wedding contract is consummated at the time the church is redeemed. Every true Christian is joined to Christ in a legal marriage. When Christ comes for his church at the rapture, the second phase of the wedding is fulfilled. The bridegroom goes to receive his bride. However, prior to this, our bridegroom has been preparing a place for us, his bride. Then the third phase follows, the wedding feast. Here it is significant to note that the bride is already the wife of the lamb, for the bridegroom has already come for his bride prior to his second coming, described in next week's passage, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, the wedding feast and not the wedding union is being announced here. The third phase of the wedding is about to take place, which is the feast, which presumes the earlier rapture or the bringing of the bride to the bridegroom. Now notice here that unlike marriages in our culture and society, it says here in verse 7, for the marriage of the lamb has come and the wife has made herself ready. When we do marriages, isn't it true that everything's pretty much about the bride? I mean, how much the bride spends on her wedding dress? The guy just rents a tux, right? We don't usually buy the tux. We don't spend thousands of dollars on the tux. The bride makes herself 
uh, ready and pretty for the wedding. And in many respects, uh, the, the wedding is, while it's about the union of the couple, it's usually about the bride because we have this incredible processional, right? Because when the wedding begins, what typically happens is the groom will come out of a side door and stand at the front and wait like this, you know. But then we play a song, and what is the name of that song? Here Comes the Bride. So you see, it's all about the bride, isn't it? That's how our culture is. But in this wedding feast, it's all about the groom. It's all about... Uh, Jesus himself, it's all about the bridegroom. And it says here, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. You see, in the Jewish idea of a wedding, the bride would be getting ready because she knows when he's coming, but she doesn't know when he's coming. She knows that he's coming, but she doesn't know when he's coming. And it's up to the bridegroom himself to determine what day and what hour he would show up. And if you're wondering about this, go back again and read Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins. It's the idea of the bridegroom can come whenever he wants. He can come at 3 a.m. if he wants. It doesn't matter. But there's this time coming when the bridegroom would show up for his bride, but she must keep herself ready. That doesn't mean she has to sleep in her wedding gown, but she has to be ready. And there's the idea here in Revelation 19.7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. You see, that's the idea for us as the church, isn't it? That we need to always be ready. That there's this constant expectancy that the wedding would come and that the bridegroom is coming. We need to be ready. Jesus wrote, or he said these words in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? Building that extension onto his Father's house so that we, the bride, can come and have a place to be with him forever and ever. John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And we believe that's a veiled reference to this thing called the rapture of the church. And then Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, as he gave this parable of the, the, the minas, he said these words, and he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said to them, Occupy until I come. So we are to be here doing what he's called us to do, being servants, honoring the Lord, keeping our eyes open, having this attitude of come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, in our hearts, preparing ourselves for when he might come and call us to be with himself. Or consider in Ephesians chapter 5, that great marriage chapter, listen to this very carefully, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That, here's the reason, that he, that is Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her, his bride, with the washing of water by the word. How are we, the church, cleansed and kept pure before him forever? It's the word. It's the washing of the water by the word and the word Used here for word is the word rhema, meaning the spoken word. And we need to hear the words of Jesus, not just being spoken to us as we read his word. We need to read his word, 
Perhaps we need to read it out loud, but we need to hear the spoken word. We need to come to church and we need to hear the word of God. Verse 27, that, here's the reason, that he, Jesus, might present her, the bride, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see, this is the wedding supper of the Lamb, that we are being presented to him uh, without wrinkle or spot or blemish, not just on the day that we are raptured to be with him, <clears throat> but as we come to this glorious time called the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we might be in that place of being pure and chaste, a virgin, coming to our husband, because it's not until after the marriage supper of the Lamb that the consummation takes place. Paul said a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, For I am jealous for you, writing to this Corinthian church with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What a great attitude for a pastor to have for a church, amen? That we could prepare ourselves to be presented to our Lord as a chaste virgin before him. Verse 8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. And the idea here is shimmering, so that when the light hits her dress, that there is this glow, the, the light is glancing off of the dress, and it is a brilliance. And this is the idea that we are being presented to our Lord. <clears throat> and the, the garment, the apparel with which we are arrayed is fine linen, clean and bright. And there is this shimmering light coming off of us. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Do you understand that our works matter to God? And praise God that we're not here because of our own righteousness, right? We are told, let me read this to you here and then it will make sense. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with with her jewels. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind. He has taken us away. You see, our righteousness is like filthy rags. But by grace, we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not, as, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, we are in Christ because God has imputed to us his righteousness. That's what Romans chapter 5 is all about. That the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us. It has been imputed to us. And so this word here <clears throat> for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The translators put the word acts in there or deeds because they didn't know what to say. But the literal Greek says... For the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. What a beautiful picture. God looks at us and he sees our righteousness as being in Christ. And you see, this is why we have James and Paul and others telling us this is why our deeds matter. You see, because of who we are. 
because my, my righteousness is as filthy rags, because I have therefore been given instead the righteousness of Christ, because I therefore have been given the love of God, because I have therefore now been made to be in Christ, now the things that I do with my heart being right before God matter to God. This is why our deeds matter. This is why our service to God matters. God wants us to serve him. He wants us to love him. And he wants the things that we do to be fruit or to be overflow of our relationship with him. He wants us to be the responders to the love that he has so freely given us. And so the righteousness says of us, the saints, are pleasing to God and it becomes a part of of this end time scenario, when we appear at the wedding feast of the Lamb, our righteousnesses will be brought into play. Some of us are very weak in this area. But you see, it's not a call to double down and to buck up and to pull your shoes up and to get going. It's a call to draw near to God. It's a call to press in closer to the Lord and to allow ourselves to be motivated by the love of Christ. You see, Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. Let our righteous acts that come forth from our life be because of the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God shed abroad in my life. And then he said in verse 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. You see, the marriage supper There's one bride, but then there's the guests. And those who were called to be the guests, uh, in my understanding here, are the other people. We think about the Old Testament saints. We think about the tribulation saints. You know, uh, Linda asked me last week or two weeks ago as we were talking about this, well, you know, you have the Old Testament saints, you have the tribulation saints, you have the church. Is the marriage supper of the Lamb just really for the bride of Christ or are there other people Involved, And I believe what this is saying to us here is that those other groups of saints get invited to the table to participate. With the, the, the bride is the bride of Christ. That's how the church is referred to all throughout the New Testament. So there are distinct uh, distinctions between the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, and the church. But here the bride, the church, is there. We, the wedding feast is because we are there to be wed to our bridegroom, but everybody else is invited. Uh, Those who are called to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, they are a part of it. God brings it all together in a beautiful way. The saints of the Old Testament, the saints during the time of the tribulation, and now the church being wed to Christ. And so John, verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. That is this messenger who came to him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We don't even have time to do the Bible study that looks at the prophecies in the Bible and how they point to Jesus Christ. You see, prophecy in the Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's about the Messiah. It's about the time when Jesus would come and redeem his people. It's about the time when Jesus would come back. And as we'll begin to get into next week, the second coming of Christ. At the end of the time of the tribulation. In fact, 
people look at this thing, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they say, where does this fall divinely in the timeline of things? And, and admittedly, this is opinion and speculation, but I believe, after looking at all this, that the marriage supper of the Lamb happens after what we just read about, the judgment of Babylon, but now God brings his church together and we have this great celebration called the marriage feast of the Lamb, and then the time of the end begins where the second coming of Christ and then we become a part of that glorious army to come down and become a part of the bab battle of Armageddon. So I believe that is what is happening as I read this. So here we have worship God again. And we've already had Alleluia four times. We've already had praise the Lord multiple times. We've already had these calls and these admonishments to worship God. And here again we have it at, in verse 10. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me ask you a question as we begin to close this morning. Are you worshiping the Lord? Not just a set-aside time on Sunday morning, but is, is worship built into your life? I'll tell you what I do. I don't know about you. I, I love music. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. And I listen to it all the time. And I, I sing it back to the Lord. And I read the Psalms, the hymn book of Israel, because that was how Israel worshipped the Lord. And I just, I just worship God. I, I don't do it 24-7. I wish I could. I wish I had the mental capacity to do that. But we all know we don't because we have to devote our time and energy to other things, to kids, to driving. You don't want to die. Actually, I pray a lot when I'm driving. You know, it's good to let that motivate you to pray. But engage in worshiping the Lord. Make worshiping the Lord something that is a part of your life. Just build it into the fabric of your life. Maybe throughout your day when you have a moment, put worship music on. Find good quality worship music. You know, people. there are people who say, hey, man, the lyrics don't matter. I don't listen to those. I like the beat. You know what? The lyrics are in there. The lyrics matter. The lyrics matter more than the beat when it comes to the worship of the Lord because biblical truth is what worship is about. And so whatever we're singing, that song in our heart back to the Lord, it needs to be honoring to the Lord. And God doesn't care about the beat. He cares about the message. So we want to worship the Lord. Jesus wrote as we close this morning, however, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. You see, spirit-led worship. John, Jesus said in John 4, those who worship me must do so in spirit and in truth. Spirit-led worship is always going to honor and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So let his praise be on our lips. Let us as his bride be ready for that time when the trump blows and when we are called to be by his side. Let us be ready to worship, not just uh, today, tomorrow, the next day, but in eternity. Let us prepare ourselves for that time. You know, we prepare ourselves for exams, don't we? We prepare ourselves for certifications and all sorts of things that we go through in life. You prepare for the driver's test. Why don't we prepare to worship the Lord? Amen. Alleluia, 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 
Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Lord, we love you this morning. We praise you. We worship you. We honor you. For the salvation, the glory, the honor, the power, it all belongs to you. And Lord, may we, as your sons and your daughters, your servants, Lord, may we just be more in love with you and serve you with everything that we do. Lord, whether we're making breakfast for the kids or changing diapers or doing laundry or driving to work or in meetings that sometimes may seem pointless to us or whatever we're doing, Lord, in our lives. Lord, give us that attitude that Paul encouraged. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God the Father. Lord, may we have this attitude deep within us just to be responders of your grace, your love, your mercy. Lord, may we be filled to the fullness of God. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we love you more and more and more. May we serve you. May our lives be a testimony to who you are. Lord, may it be on that great day if we are not raptured, but we instead go to the grave. May it be said of us that he or she loved Jesus. And may that be the testimony that we leave behind. May our greatest high and even our lowest low somehow bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's worship the Lord.